Thank you, Carolyn, for leading us so beautifully in worship this morning. Turn your copy of God's Word to the 77th Song of the Psalter, Psalms 77. Do thank all of you who helped work at Bible school last week. We had an enrollment of 1,387. As Robbie told you about the largest Bible school we can find, we go way, way back, maybe 40 years ago. And we are so delighted and we're thankful for all those who volunteered in work. It takes about 400 volunteers. This entire room is filled with children and that half of the balcony. And they started about three years plus and go on up through sixth grade. Uh, we had attorneys who didn't go in until after lunch. They took morning vacation to help. We had uh, financial managers from doctor's offices take a whole week's vacation to be able to help us. We had teachers who had worked hard all school, school year long, and the last thing they wanted to do probably was be in a room this size, which probably equaled about four elementary schools altogether, the number of kids, and they came and they helped. We had school principals and administrators, and we had a lot of our students working, and I want to challenge you to think now, right now, about helping us with this again next year. It takes 400 volunteers. Uh, this Bible school was so special because the spirit of those volunteering was so upbeat. There wasn't a negative word. They were patient with the children. They were loving. The children were in good spirits, and they were getting it. And I want to challenge you. We've got a, right now, almost every Sunday this su summer, we have people all over the world sharing Jesus. Right now, we're starting a church in California in Santa Cruz, and then our students are this morning in Dallas. Uh, to save the heathen in Dallas, and then they'll move on to, to Alabama, and uh, they will witness in, in Alabama. And all that's good. But if you don't like getting on a 10-hour bus ride or plane ride, we'll see you right here next year in this room. How about taking a week's vacation and staying right here in town? 50-something uh, decisions for Jesus. Don't you want to be a part of something like that? 2,000 Canned goods will be distributed through our Perkins Center to those who are hungry. And we want to hear Jesus say they were hungry and you did feed them. So it's not automatic. It takes real volunteers and real people. The children were coming in waves and it's so organized and so well done. You'd be so proud of your children's and preschool staff and, and how they conducted themselves this week. Max Lucado says it's the heroine of the emotions. The angel dust of the spirit, the cocaine of the soul, injected into our system with the intentions of recovery, it has the capacity to kill. It's available and alluring, and many of its users and dealers are Christians. The name of the drug is self-pity. No one dependent upon pity ever intended to get this way. The first experiment with the drug is usually a legitimate problem, a sickness maybe, a cancer, a cold, a broken leg, or maybe it's weathering a, a crisis, a bankruptcy, a death in the family, or a divorce. Whatever the cause, the treatment is the same. Well-meaning friends show up and treat us with pity, kind words, sympathetic gestures, empathetic tears, and most of the time, the treatment has its intended results. Healing occurs. We experience the, the love of Christ through the love of the church. And we pick ourselves up. We re-enter life in our changed condition. And we do the best that we can. 
There are times, however, when habits are formed. The attention and the compassion feel so good. The sudden flood of love and warmth gives us a type of high. Well-intentioned friends inject our veins with kindness. They fill our room with the smoke of understanding. My, it feels nice. In fact, it's been a, been a while since we've felt that much love and care. Instead of getting back on our feet, we allow ourselves to become accustomed to the addiction. Motivation wanes and creativity disappears. Initiative exits and paralysis enters. We love the process of healing so much we refuse to be healed. We love the process of healing so much that we refuse to be healed. Instead of getting better, we convince ourselves that we're worse. In time, we become pity junkies and, well, we'll, we thrive on the compassion of others and we become masters of reciting our woes and gladly will retell the story to anybody who will listen. We bear our wounds to all who pass, begging for a sympathetic touch. As is true with drugs, the pity has less and less impact. And soon the, the pity from others is not enough, and so we formulate our own in our own inner laboratory. We convince ourselves that we are the victim of everything. Our parents didn't raise us rightly. My boss doesn't respect me. I was potty trained too early. Society expects too much of me. Nobody loves me and everybody hates me. I think I'll eat some worms before it's over with. For those who follow this cycle to its predictable end, there is but one final step. Pity, self-pity always leads to anger, to anger. We've become so efficient at convincing ourselves that we're victimized by the world that the only logical reaction is anger. Angry at the world and angry at our family and angry at our friends and angry at our God. This paralyzed us to the point we are useless to our family, useless to our church and our community. Of course, the problem with this Opium of self-pity is that we're all susceptible to it, aren't we? We all have problems in our life. We all, everybody in here experiences a death in her family or a death in his family. And all of a sudden we find ourselves with real circumstances that allow us to begin to feel sorry for ourselves. Tragedy strikes in loving, caring friends, a church, they come to support us. And well, they should. We all need a lift up at times, and yet there's those occasions when we don't get over it. We don't want to get over it. We enjoy this comfort, this pity. We enjoy those listening ears and those kind hugs and smiles, and we begin to search for the friends who really understand, the ones who will hear the story one more time, and we become so focused on ourselves. That's exactly what's taking place in Psalm 77. We have a self-pity junkie at the beginning. Well, I want to say some things about our self-pity. First of all, self-pity often comes from accurate facts. Self-pity. 
self-pity is often based upon accurate facts. He really does have a nicer car than I do. She really does have a husband who will sit down and listen, who's more understanding than yours. His metabolism really is faster and he can eat anything he wants and, and look like a model. I really am doing all the work and he really is getting all the credit and getting the promotions. Yes, the facts are often not in dispute. The wife that I really did love for 52 years has died and now I'm abandoned. Or well, my husband really did leave me when I hit 40 for his younger secretary. There's no doubt about self-pity. I would say often, if not always, it deals with accurate facts. There really is a divorce. There really is a death. There really is a cancer. There really is an ailment. It's all real. Eugene Peterson has noted the antidote for this self-pity virus, this overdrugging ourselves, is found in the prayer of Psalm 77. Well, the second thing I want you to know is not only are we often dealing with realistic facts, but secondly, those used to self-pity allow no bomb to heal. Those accustomed to pitying himself or herself, they allow no bomb, nothing to work, nothing to heal. Well, look at Psalm 77, 1 and 2. My voice rises to God, and I will cry out loud. My voice rises to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In my right hand, I was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. The psalmist says he's staying awake at night. He's having trouble with his sleep all night long. He's reaching and he's grasping without ceasing. And yet he says, he admits, my soul refuses to be comforted. I like the, the warmth, the sympathy, the empathy so much. I'm not willing to take the next step forward and the progress of healing. He's saying, I remember I remember at night that God is not hearing my prayers and I refuse to be comforted. There's a third thing he says, that is self-pity is accusing. Self-pity is accusing. Look at verses three through four. When I remember God, then I'm disturbed. What an awful statement. See where he is? Would that be your prayer? When I think about God, I'm disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. God, you've held my eyelids open. I am so troubled, I cannot speak. This self-absorbing trouble leaves no time even for sleep. He can't sleep at night, and so what does he do? He says, God, you're the one. You're prying my eyelids open. You're keeping me awake at night. God is the one to blame for his insomnia, his worrying, his tossing, and his turning in the bed. God, you're the one. You are holding my eyelids open at night. We begin down that road, that journey of self-pity. It's always someone else, isn't it? Someone else is responsible for our unhappiness. Someone else has robbed us of the joy of our life. Someone else has rained on our parade. And if no one else is handy, 
whether the one who left you in divorce or the one who died or whatever, the boss who's unfair, if no one else will stand up and take the blame, do what the psalmist does and just blame God. You're the one. I'm disturbed when I think about you, God. You're keeping me awake at night. Here's a fifth thing we see in this prayer, the disturbed, self-pitied psalmist. Self-pity grovels in nostalgia. Self-pity grovels in nostalgia. Look what he says in verse 5. I consider the days of old, the years of long ago. Self-pity is a shabby historian. Self-pity always looks back and remembers, quote, the good old days. Everybody wants to go back to the good old days because our memories have filtered, cleaned, and washed and changed the good old days to be something, quite honestly, that there weren't. Anybody here ready to go to the good old days without their iPhone? Anybody ready to go back to the good old days with a horse and buggy and no automobile? Anybody ready to go back to the good old days? It's always if things would once more be like things used to be, then everything would be grand. If he were still alive, if I were still married to her, if I had my old job back, if only, if only, if only, if only, self pity is a horrible historian. It gets us stuck in history and self-pity. We are so fixated on the past that we cannot live in the present, much less imagine a good future. You see that? Those days aren't coming back. The divorce is final. The funeral's already been held. The corporation's already merged. It's over. We must Remove ourselves from being fixated on the past and look to the future. The future with God. There's a, another thing I want you to see about self-pity. That is, it is exactly that. It is focused on the self. It is focused on the self. Look at, look at verse 1. How many first-person personal pronouns do we have in these first verses? My voice rises to God, and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, I am disturbed. When I, you see, on and on, all the way down to verse 6, I, me, my, I, me, my, I, me, my. All of us sometimes should take a recording device and see how many times we use first-person pronouns in our language. He is so absorbed on the self that he cannot think about God. There's no healthy self-awareness. Eugene Peterson says, self-meditating on the self is in a room without air, without oxygen, left there long enough breathing its own gases. It sickens I, me, my mind. Here's a 
A sixth thing I'd say about self-pity, it's a terrible theologian. It's a terrible theologian. Verses 7 through 9. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God, has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? Then I said in, in my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. Look at those last words. The right hand of the Most High has changed. The psalmist moves from self-focus now to God-focus, but in the God-focus, God is not good enough. God has failed. Will the Lord spurn and never be favorable again? Has the love of the Lord stopped? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious in his anger? Has God shut up his compassion? When people are full of self-pity, they have a, a rejecting God, a tired God, a stingy God, a forgetful God, and an angry God. That's the way they see God. Self-pity makes for bad theology. God becomes something that God isn't. And then finally in verse 10, he says, has God changed? Is the mighty arm of the Lord not mighty anymore? I look to my God and his mighty arms are gone, he says in verse 10. The right hand of the Most High is changed. I look to God. The New English Bible says it this way. Has his right hand, I said, lost its grasp? Does it hang powerless, the arms of God? We see these self-pitying people limping through life. We want to call them all of a sudden. In, in, in verse 10, it all begins to change as we start a new, new chapter in the, the prayer in verse 11. Look at verse 11. I remember the deeds of the Lord. I'll remember thy wonders of old. I'll meditate on thy work, thy way. Oh, God is holy. What God is like my great God? You, O oh God, who workest wonders, you who made known thy strength among the peoples, you and your power redeem thy people, the sons of Jacob and the sons of Joseph. You see how it changed? All of a sudden, the pronouns changed from I, me, and mine. And now the, the psalmist, the one who once had self-pity, has moved to adoration of God. And now it's about you, God. Thee and thou, you and yours, God, you are the center of all that is. To get past self-pity, we got to stop, number one, focusing on self and focus on God. To get past self-pity, we have to stop focusing on ourselves. The worst thing you can do is sit and rehearse your problems once again. It can even begin here in worship. You might hear someone come to a worship service and say, you know, I didn't get anything out of it. We didn't intend for you to get anything out of it. We intended for you to stop thinking about yourself. We intended for you to enter this room built to the glory of God and focus on you, 
on you, O God, how big and powerful, saving and redeeming and sustaining you are. You see, even you can ruin this hour asking the question, did I like it? Did I get something out of it? The moment your worship is about you and your utility or your result, you have not stopped and focused on the God of the universe. Secondly, to get over our self-pity, we have to remember what God has done for us. I remember, I love verse 11 where the word remember is used. Surely I will remember your wonders. God, I will remember your redemption. I will remember your salvation. He begins to remember. Then in verses 16 through 20, we have the God of the thunderstorm. Notice we have clouds that pour out water in verse 17. We have the deeps that tremble in verse 16. We have thunder in verse 18. We have lightning as we go through this. God is mysterious and God is powerful. He's the God of the deep, the mystery that cannot be fathomed. He is the God of the thunder and the God of the lightning. He's the God of the waters that are always calm. We have to change our focus from ourselves to God. Thirdly, we have to realize this God of the storm cannot be controlled. He cannot be controlled. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember thy wonders of old. Instead of thinking about yourself, look what it says. I will meditate on all your work and muse, ponder thy deeds. Why? Because your ways are holy. I love the end of verse 13. What God is great like our God? Where are you going to find a God like the one that we worship? A God who says, let there be light, and there is, and all creation springs forth. A God who loves, a, a creator who becomes part of his creation in the form of his son Jesus, who dies on the cross in love and in power is raised from the dead, who's coming again for his bride, the church. There is no God like our God. We will remember what you have done, O oh God. Where's your heart this morning? I, me, my, mind. Still stuck in the grief of a death or a divorce, hardship at work? Have you refocused your life around your new reality and realized the one thing that hasn't changed is God is still good and God is still great and God still does his saving wonders for his people? Let us pray. Oh, God, the psalmist destroys our pity parties. He started out that way, and somewhere in the middle, he realized it was not all about him, but it's about you. 
And Father, I, I know there's a lot of hurt in this room, and I would minimize anybody's grief. I would minimize grief from death or divorce. We're here to hold hands and walk with your people through all of these losses. And yet I know in the midst of that, there must be healing. There must be movement forward for the one who is hurt to look back and take the hand of another one who's hurt and carry her, walk with her to the hope, the gospel of our God. For there is no God like our God. Amen.